Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are thrilled to bring you the former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Randall Krosner, of the University of Chicago Booth School, holding court in uh, London as well. Randy, we are staggering step by step through the tangible data, through a new Fed policy. Dovetail the mystery around the table at the Eccles building. They have a new Fed theory, a new Fed construction, but we've got the same old data. How do they fit? <laughs> yeah, same old data, but uh, but a new framework. That's exactly right. So we have this uh, uh, average inflation targeting framework that says rather than, well, when we see inflation coming, we're going to act now proactively. It says, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait until inflation gets to at least to our target or maybe even above before we start to act. And obviously we've seen that because inflation has been very high over the last few months. Uh, but the Fed has said, hey, we're not moving until 2022, 2023. Randy, are there any hawks left at the Federal Reserve? Oh, yes. I think you see some of them. Who, I mean, who are they? Stop. Because it sounds like to me there are doves and then there are super doves. Doves and super doves. <laughs> and I see no hawks right now. Who are they? Well, I guess that also changes in, uh, in context, too. So you have someone like uh, Governor Waller, who uh, just uh, spoke recently, who said, we got to get moving. Uh, we got to start to, uh, to, to um, uh, start uh, tapering a little bit uh, more rapidly because we see the economy coming back. Uh, Rich Clarida had a, a fairly optimistic view of where the economy was going. Uh, seem to be discounting the uh, the role of the uh, the Delta variant, uh, although he is certainly much more on the W side of waiting till end of 2022 before starting to raise rates. Do you agree with Eddie Blanchflower, who was on the show earlier today, who is basically saying it's correct for all of these doves to be dove and dovish because basically the fact that we have this very low participation rate in the U.S. labor market is really a result of failed policy. Do you agree with that assessment? I'm not so sure it's exactly a result of failed policy. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who've decided that, that, especially the older people who had come back into the labor market, who said, gosh, with all these uncertainties around health, maybe this is a good time for me to stay out of the labor market to, to retire. So I'm not quite sure that it's just policy. I think there are a lot of other things like the pandemic that, you know, it's just a shock that we really can't do. Uh, I mean, we can, we can respond with vaccines and such, right. but it just fundamentally changes the way people think about going to work Going, going shopping. Professor Krosner, you represent the land of microeconomics. Macro is just more e microeconomics at Chicago. Professor Krosner, how do you address the dynamics forward of our immense demand and supply imbalance? So this is a, a really interesting question where policy has a very large role to play. Obviously, we've seen extraordinarily easy monetary policy and a commitment for that for a long time. Unbelievable fiscal policy, just unprecedented. You've heard that term a million times, but it really is true. We either have spent or planning to spend on the order of 50% of GDP within an 18-month time period. That's just absolutely extraordinary. Plus, you had all the pent-up demand 
the high savings that people had, had uh, or the savings that people had built up when they could go out. And so that's all being unleashed. And so obviously we're seeing that uh, in terms of lots of uh, lots of price pressure combined with some one-off factors like the chip shortage that you were talking about, like other supply chain disruptions. So we're going to see a lot of um, a lot of price increases in the short run. The key question is, are those transitory or are those sustained? Um, I think we're going to see them transitory for a while. I don't think they're necessarily going to be sustained over the year to two year horizon, but over six months horizon, I think certainly. Randy, I don't want to talk about projections. I want to talk about how we'd respond to outcomes. So help me understand this from a Federal Reserve perspective. If a higher rate of inflation persists and it's primarily attributed to supply side constraints, but those supply side constraints also persist, how long before you have to take notice of that? Yeah, that's exactly that's a very important issue because now it's sort of uh, described as one-offs. You know, there's some supply chain disruptions, but within six months to a year, they'll be eased. High demand for used cars. There are a lot of uh, particular uh, explanations each uh, each month. But if those accumulate over time, and in particular, if those start to change people's expectations, so that people are expecting that, well, gee, I need to get paid more in order to um, uh, in order to uh, consume and companies say, well, I can push price increases in a way that I haven't been able to do in a decade or two to accommodate those higher wage increases. Um, you can get into this, this cycle where inflation starts to, to take off and become, uh, become more permanent. That's really the key. Can they keep inflation expectations well anchored? We'll see. Randy, got to leave it there. Randy <clears throat> Krosner, University of Chicago, Booth School, economics professor and former Fed governor. We need to stop the show. I said last night, and you know, as we put the show together, I said, stop. We need to talk to somebody and calm down about what to do into September, and for that matter, into September of 2022. Seema Shah is perfect with Principal Global Investors, their chief strategist today. Seema, can you own bonds? Well, look, it's so challenging right now. I mean, you know, 118, whatever it is now, it's it's. Um, it's very difficult to go long bonds at this kind of level. Now, look, of course, momentum can take you lower. But if we're looking at the fundamental story with strong growth, strong earnings, um, and a Fed, which, you know, I agree, it's, it's hardly, you can hardly call it hawkish, but ultimately they're moving to a point where they can start normalizing. I think it's a really difficult argument to make to, to own treasuries. Seema, global opportunities beckon. I've heard that a few times over the last few months. In fact, to be fair, I've heard it throughout the whole of this year. Why do they beckon now? Well, I mean, look, there's a couple of reasons. You've got a global recovery in play. I think the most interesting part of this, though, is that you've seen it a kind of a move from region to region to region through the progress of the vaccination. Um, so we started for the U.S. Europe has had a fantastic couple of months. And to us, although EM is looking pretty dicey at the moment, there are still opportunities uh, going forward. And then in this kind of environment where it's really difficult to make any decent returns, you need to be looking at where's the next thing which hasn't yet been tapped for that vaccine progress. I've heard it from US-based investors. They like the UK. The FTSE's up 10% this year. I'm told they like Japan. Japan's done nothing for me this year. It's up about 1% on the Nikkei. Do you like those markets too right now, Seymour? Is there a reason to pivot away from the wonderfulness of the US equity market that we've seen for the year so far towards the UK, towards Japan? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think, like you said, Japan has been such a disappointment um, with the global recovery, typically Japan should do well. It just doesn't seem to perform. 
But we do think that there's, again, there's opportunities there for vaccine progress, a kind of a jump start again in Japan. But, you know, I agree, it's, it's, it's difficult um, to stay excited about Japan. With the UK, I do wonder if they've had a bit of their heyday already over the last six months. Um, we need to see more action from the government, more stimulus plans. What are they going to do from the fiscal side to keep this rally going? But certainly, you know, the US does look good, but there are always opportunities globally. And, you know, we know you need to be diversified and there are other opportunities um, Europe, EM, which is still beckoning for us. Talking about the U.S., do you agree with David Costin's view over Goldman Sachs that we're looking at a 4,700 on the S&P at the end of the year and a 4,900 by year-end 2022? So we are still very much risk on. We still think there's a lot to play for with, within equities. And for the same reasons that, that David's been pointing out, which is if you look at the fundamentals, earnings growth has been fantastic. Um, you know, we, we're seeing companies showing real pricing power, which does fill us with some um, positivity going forward. Um, I think the big question mark, as I said, is of course bond yields. Um, and if we're gonna get to that 2% level that some people are still um, um, pinning down for the end of the year, that's gonna make it much more difficult. We, we don't think 2% is likely, it's a slightly lower level. Um, and in that kind of environment, yes, US equities can continue to perform well. Seema, can you walk us through a scenario in which bond yields get to 2% and the reaction function in equities? I mean, I'm personally confused by the scenario that will lead to 2% yields and then how that will trickle into equities. Yeah, look, if, if put it like this, two months ago, if we'd then seen uh, US yields hitting 2%, that would have been a steady rise through the rest of the year. And I think equities could have digested that. At this point, where yields are, for them to hit 2% now by the end of the year, that would be a very, very sharp move. It'd be very disruptive, and I don't think equities could cope with it. But to get us there, you need to have um, the growth boom really once again taking off. You need to have the Fed clearly indicating that tapering is on the agenda, and you just need that momentum to be there. Now, positioning to us tells us that it could it could shift, right? That momentum could come through where you get a huge overshooting of, of whatever your fair value um, perspective is. But we need a lot of the stars to align. Seema, the, the, the challenge here is our history of EM is a history of 1992. I'm guessing Ecuador, Mexico came along in 94 and on and on. Is the great surprise out there that EM falls apart as the developed countries adjust over the next 24 months? I think so. You know, I think a lot of investors, including us, we look at as, as look at EM as a long-term opportunity. It's where your long-term growth forecasts are going to come through. Um, and once, you know, we've got COVID behind us, especially for those countries, um, then we would expect a lot of those benefits to come through. So, um, but, you know, particularly with emerging markets, it's simply, it's just not a homogenous market. You have to be picking your countries, your sectors very, very carefully because there is a lot of differences um, and as we all know, policy politics becomes a really uh, a far more important issue for EM. Seema, we've got to leave it there. It's good to catch up. Appreciate your Wonderful. time. Seema Shah, Principal Global Investors, Chief Strategist out of London. What's more important, QE or rates? Let's bring in Steve Rashida for yeah. more on that from Azure Securities, the Chief U.S. Economist. Steve, let's start there. You think that QE is actually the more important tool here. When someone and I sit, someone like I sit myself sits here and says, you know what, I think QE doesn't really matter. 120 billion, 180, that doesn't make a difference. You think it does make a difference, Steve? Why? I do think it does, because I believe, you know, you're living in a world of excess supply. And therefore, what you need to do is you need to create the liquidity that allows 
inflation rate to actually not get sucked into a deflationary bias. And this has been the Fed's ongoing risk by continuing to fall back into their preemptive ways. And this is the thing that worries me the most. You know, the interest rate dynamic, how it affects the currency is not having any impact whatsoever on the currency. You know, a difference between a near zero interest rate level or, a you know, a five to 10 basis point negative isn't going to cause people to move assets around globally and therefore affect the currency and then expose us global import prices. But QE does. QE1 worked very, very well at avoiding the deflation uh, initially during the uh, financial crisis. QE2 worked very, very well to do exactly the same thing. And it worked very, very well in here until the Fed began the process of backing away from being preemptive, backing away from being reactive to being preemptive by laying out forecasts of when they thought it would be appropriate to exit QE. I don't think they should ever execute. I think they have to trim it back to the pace of nominal GDP growth and leave it an automatic pilot. This is a huge call. They should never exit QE. And the uh, follow on here is they should never shrink their balance sheet. The idea right. here that an $8.2 trillion Fed balance sheet is not big enough. How big should it be, Steve? Well, I, I don't think there's an answer as to how big it should be. Let, let's take a look. $5.4 trillion, the, the big expansion here, was done under the environment of offsetting the huge drag on the economy as a result of the COVID-19 lockdown mitigation strategy. That is a one-time permanent increase in the balance sheet. Allowing the balance sheet to then continue to grow at the pace of nominal GDP suggests primarily that you're continuing to support the economy. You want that level of nominal GDP to be consistent with, let's say, a 5% nominal GDP growth. So you can get a growth rate that's somewhere between 2.5% and an inflation of 2 to 2.5%. And therefore, it gives you an environment where you're supporting that inflationary bias in the economy to avoid the bigger risk of falling into deflation, which Japan has been done in for 30 years. Europe is arguably in there now with 30-year bonds uh, trading in the negative territory, 10-year bonds down at minus 50. Uh, Europe has gone down the deflation path. There's arguments that China's gone down the deflation path or is going down the deflation path. That's 38% of global GDP. They're all net creditors. We're a net debtor. If we have deflation, it's a real problem. Steve Rusciuto, have you extended out this glide path from a boom economy back to some form of normal? Have you in the last weeks, even the months, extended that out into 22, 23, and indeed even 24? Well, I mean, you have. I mean, the reality is the stimulus that we're providing is transfer pay. And to to a great extent, it has been a one-time transfer of wealth because households have been allowed deleverage which is good, increase their savings, which is good. So we've taken wealth from the public sector and we've given it to the private sector. That's good. That assures you a longer sustained expansionary environment. But it doesn't tell you the rate of growth that you're going to get. And I think in a global deflationary world where we have a trade deficit of $75.7 billion, where basically we've leaked a lot of the stimulus transfer payments, the demand that was created overseas, and yet they still can't get out of a deflationary bias. You know, we're in an environment where we're going to rapidly turn back to that two to two and a quarter percent growth rate. And our forecast or we get there by 2023. Steve, just quickly, payrolls tomorrow, 870 the estimate. What are you looking for? 
Well, I'm slightly below that. I'm in the 750 area. The, the reason for it is, look, even one of those numbers is great. Um, I, I just think the seasonal factors are probably a little bit screwed up, uh, given the, the volatility last year. And again, I don't know how many of the seasonal workers relating to education, because a lot of the southern schools have already gone back to uh, to the classroom, whether or not that get mani- manifests itself, especially in the northeast area where people are being a little bit more reluctant to start bringing people back, not knowing what's going to happen as we go into the uh, September school year. Steve, got to catch up to get your thoughts, especially sure. going into tomorrow. Steve Rusciuto of Mizuho there, looking for 870. That's your median estimate. The range is wide, wide, wide. It is always wide, wide, wide these days. Right now, what I'm hearing from so many people anecdotally, thank you for the tweets and the emails, we love getting them uh, in, is you really like that we talk to experts. On your fears of the variants, Gigi Granville, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And what is so so important here, folks, is Dr. Granville is one of the nation's leading protein chemists with their work at Memorial Sloan Kettering over the years. Gigi, I'm going to cut to the chase. We're not going to make this Leninger's 101. There's Delta variant, there's Lambda variant, and there's the spike protein. What do our listeners and viewers need to fear? Well, they don't need to fear um, variants. They're not magic. Um, it's they from a from a broader perspective, from public health, it, these variants are making the disease harder to to end. It's making the pandemic harder to end. But all the things that you can do for Delta, all the things that you should have been doing for Alpha, they still work. You still need to get vaccinated, um, use a mask in areas of high transmission, um, really pay attention to air quality, get air uh, HEPA, uh, HEPA filtration devices for classrooms and public spaces, and you, know, and you should be okay. Within the spike, and let's not get into DNA, mRNA, and the rest of it, and the very fancy Greek letters of your world, do the vaccines that we have now, do they have a confidence to carry over to these other variants, or should we worry about it like we worry about, say, Staphylococcus in the bacteria world? Right. Yeah. Uh, So it is a concern, but it's not something we've seen yet. And so people don't uh, need to worry that their vaccines are not effective. Right now, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, some there might be some uh, fewer antibody responses from one variant or another, but the vaccines are good. Thankfully, your immune system is a little more complicated than just one way of measuring it. And um, your immune system, we've, we're evolved creatures. We've been going to war against infectious diseases for a very long time. So, um, you know, we're going to be okay as long as you get the vaccine. And if we need to have an updated one, um, that will happen at some point in the future. But things look good right now. We're evolved creatures. I like that. Some of us are. Dr. Granval, there is a question also about the booster shots, because especially as we hear from Moderna, that their mRNA vaccine remains uh, effective six months after the second shot. The idea here of 93% efficacy basically being nearly the same as initially. Does this basically remove the need for near-term boosters and lengthen the recovery time that we could potentially have economically and socially? 
So just to clarify, so they saw that efficacy uh, six months out. That doesn't mean that the vaccine only lasts for six months. We think that the vaccines will last potentially for years before you might need a booster. And yes, you're right. That probably means that for most people, they will not need a booster. I think most people are thinking boosters might be necessary or probably will be necessary for people who have um, immunocompromised uh, you know, position, uh, uh, conditions like uh, they might have had a liver transplant or they are very elderly or they have some other condition that is going to uh, lead to them needing to have a booster shot. Meanwhile, that's good news. Uh, on the bad news, the vaccine uh, has not prevented the spread of the Delta variant. Is it a futile goal to try to eliminate the circulation entirely of these viruses? We're not. Um, so any talk of eradication, just put that out of your mind. Um, it's not going to happen. Um, this is a virus that's very, it called a generalist virus. It infects other animals. Um, people have gotten infected from animals, from their, from mink. It's gone to mink and back, and it probably has gone to, to pets and back too, but we haven't seen that mm -hmm. yet. Um, so I, that, that's not going to happen, but we can make it something that is not going to cause people mm -hmm. to go to the hospital. And that's really, you know, what we need to, to be focused on. We need to prevent um, morbidity right. and mortality. Dr. Granville, John Farrell is really focused on China, the dynamics of this pandemic in China. And we've had reports from experts there that this time is different. How do you interpret the size, the scope, the scale of China and their ability to contain, to diminish hospitalizations and deaths. Um, China has some uh, some ability to move in different directions and require things that other places do not, um, but humans are the same everywhere. And um, I think people um, have a natural tendency to congregate. And um, so that's going to be a challenge in combating any infectious disease um, that is passed from person to person. And, um, and, and it can be counterproductive if you're not fully getting all the information that you need. Um, but yes, this variant is definitely more challenging than others because people have a lot more virus in their nose um, and they're breathing more out and so they're, and they're infectious for longer. And so that's, uh, that's why it's going to be a challenge for even countries that have done very well with the, with the disease so far. Doctor, always enjoy catching up with you. Thanks for your time this morning. Dr. Gigi Grumble there, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. We all have our litmus paper of a daily pricing. Long ago and far away, it used to be a quart of milk. And for so many today, it is what does an Uber cost? What does a Lyft cost? And all the rest of it. The transportation for our offspring, our own transportation. Get out some time, as Lisa Bramowitz has, and add up the bill. It becomes big. Big is the word we would <laughs> operate on. That's very true. Right now, with a big interview, the definitive interview on all this ride hailing, our Emily Chang with the Uber CEO. Here's Emily Chang. Welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audiences. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. And joining us now, Uber CEO Dara Khosra Shahi. Dara, great to have you back here on the show. Of course, uh, we're following earnings, beat on the top and bottom lines, but losses, uh, $509 million. I know you say that'll narrow significantly in the next quarter, but the Delta variant is ripping up the playbook yet again. How are you seeing this play out on the roads? What markets are struggling the most? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to see uh, the effect of Delta. Overall, we're really happy with the results. The top line beat. Uh, we knew that we needed to get more drivers out driving and couriers delivering because the demand was growing so quickly. So we leaned in to really increase courier supply and driver supply. And we added 420,000 couriers uh, and drivers uh, during the quarter between kind of June and February, uh, added another 110,000 with Postmates couriers as well. So we're really getting the earner force out there and it's resulted in top line volumes that are very, very strong. Uh, and it's putting us on a path where Q3 losses are going to come down significantly. In Q4, we're going to hit EBITDA profitability as well. As far as the Delta goes, it's difficult to tell what the effect is, except for markets that have closed down. So Sydney, for example, uh, has really shut down. The mobility business comes down, but our delivery business grows very significantly. And we net out, for example, in Sydney at 30% uh, ahead of uh, of 19 volume. So overall, we have this great hedge between mobility and delivery. But when we look at city by city, you look at a New York, you look at a Paris, you look at an LA, et cetera, it's very hard to discern any patterns as far as Delta goes. We'll be watching very closely. We're going to talk about Eats in a sec, uh, but you know, in terms of ride hailing, look, I've taken about 10 Ubers in the last month after not taking any for a year and a half. Sometimes it's there in Thank two you. minutes. Sometimes it's there in 20 minutes. Sometimes <laughs> you're welcome. Sometimes I get canceled on. So when do you foresee a more consistent balance of supply and demand? So Emily, this is exactly why we really leaned in in Q2. We wanted to get the Uber service back to predictable prices that you can expect, ETAs that you can expect. And ETAs and prices are coming back to historical levels uh, in states like Texas, Florida, et cetera. They're getting there faster. New York is in better shape. So it's really location by location. But we are consistently seeing ETAs and prices come down. I think that by September, October, November, you're going to get that magical Uber experience that you've, all, you've always been used to. And we're leaning as a, as a company to get there as quickly as possible. And you're spending a lot to get drivers back out there, $250 million in the last quarter, but you've said you can taper incentives through the rest of the year. Lyft says they're amping up their incentives. So what makes you so confident you can win drivers back if you whittle yours down? Well, because we're, we're seeing the drivers come back. 420,000 came, uh, came back uh, in just a couple of months. And what we're seeing in July is, you know, we started with incentives to really get drivers out there. But we're moving from essentially incentives to uh, improving our onboarding processing. We reduced onboarding time by 90% with a new, much smoother onboarding process. We're reaching out to drivers uh, who had stopped driving to resurrect them to get back on the road. That has been enormously successful as well. So in July, for example, we were able to taper incentives. We're targeting them much more specifically in the cities where we needed, when we needed. And at the same time, new drivers who signed up in July were up 30% month on month from, from June. So we're seeing the numbers, they're really encouraging. And we're not assuming that we're gonna get any better, even though based on our technology and the systems that we have in place, we do think we can get more targeted and better in terms of onboarding drivers and couriers. And obviously, you know, profitability, really important milestone. You've promised you're still going to hit that before the end of the year. But what are the chances that Delta uh, could shake that up, too? What are the chances you don't hit that milestone? 
You know, the good news for us is that we we have the hedge, right? So if uh, if mobility gets hit because of Delta, we see the delivery business growing. And we've also stated that the delivery business is going to get EBITDA profitable by Q4 as well. So we think we're reasonably protected. Obviously, it's a very, very uncertain environment. But we're the only company out there that's leading in mobility on a global basis outside of China, that's leading in delivery on a global global basis outside of China. These businesses are now strengthening each other. And actually, customers who use both mobility and delivery uh, account for nearly 50% of our gross bookings on a global basis. So if you stay home, you're going to use Eats. If you want to get out to a restaurant, you're going to use classic Uber. Uh, That is a strength and the unique strength that we bring. Now, last time we spoke, you you talked about how you've basically built another Uber. There's you know, Uber ride sharing and Uber Eats. When you look five years out, which Uber is bigger? You know, you're obviously expanding into grocery, you're expanding into instant delivery. Um, but 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 how do the two are the two Ubers still twins or, or or something else? Emily, you're making me choose between my kids. I'd much rather have them compete. <laughs> We've got a team that's growing our Uber business. We've got a team that's growing our Eats business. They're going to compete with each other. Uh, and, you know, we'll see who wins. I do think that the delivery total addressable market, you know, we've expanded delivery from just restaurants now to grocery. We're getting into alcohol delivery. We're delivering for Apple. We'll deliver a, an, an iPhone to your home. So the total addressable market for the delivery business is probably bigger. But as it relates to Uber, we're getting into transit. We're uh, wiring up uh, taxi cabs, two-wheelers, three-wheelers. So it's going to be a great competition, and I'm going to be pushing both of them to grow as fast as possible. You uh, are doubling down on freight. Bought Transplace last month, $2.25 billion. That makes software that helps companies manage their supply chains, manage logistics. What's the vision to own that? What's the vision to own supply and logistics? Well, I think you hear uh, all the time now how supply chain has become a problem for a lot of companies and is becoming a much more important part of how they operate. 50% of Uber Freight's customers are actually consumer packaged goods, makers, brands, et cetera. Uh, The same brands that we're delivering for, you know, corner shop into your home. So we think with Transplace, we're going to be helping these brands actually manage their supply chain. With Uber Freight, we are connecting them to the shippers that can get the food or the water or the sodas or the beer from the warehouse to the store. And with Eats, we can get uh, that, that soda or food from the store to the home. Uh, it is, there's no one else that is building this kind of end-to-end logistics infrastructure powered by machine learning that understands where you are, when you are, and can make that chain the most efficient. That's really what we're building. Uh, And the Transplace team is just dynamite. So we would be very happy to have them as part of the Uber family. You've pushed back your return to work. You're mandating vaccines for your corporate employees. You did have a COVID exposure at a board meeting. And and look, the Delta is real. It is scary. You're not mandating vaccines for drivers. How are you thinking about this? Instacart CEO just told me they're debating it for shoppers. Is it at all on the table? It's, it's you know, these are subjects that we talk about all the time. I do think that it's different when you're talking about employees or spending eight hours a day in an office. And remember for us, um, the big issue is if we mandate it for drivers, I think we'd have to mandate it for riders as well. 
And when you have a company that has a has essentially a hundred million riders and drivers uh, using the service every single month, I don't think that uh, to have a company have the power to mandate vaccinations over a hundred thousand, a hundred million people who are moving around. Um, is probably the right call. So we are going to work with governments based on government mandates, local mandates, we're going to follow them. And at the same time, we're pushing very, very hard to help drivers, couriers, riders get vaccinated, often providing vaccinations for free or transportation to vaccinations for free. So we're absolutely doing our part. We are coming up on your four-year Uberversary, so congratulations on that. The Thank New York you. Times recently called you the dad of Silicon Valley, uh, a stark contrast to your predecessor. As you look out on the next four years, from a cultural perspective, what are your priorities, you know, especially when it comes to diversity and building uh, you know, a more inclusive workforce? What's the company and the culture that you want to build? Well, I think the kind of company that we want to build are full of entrepreneurs who want to have impact and impact in the broadest way, but in real life, uh, right? The service that we are building essentially will allow people to go anywhere, get anything into their homes and, and, and millions of people earn. That comes with a lot of responsibility. So we want entrepreneurs who want to build, but they want to build responsibly. And diversity is a big part of that. We need to have that diversity in our workforce because we certainly have that diversity in our earner base and our courier base. Uh, and ultimately, that is going to help us build a better product. But it's all about impact in the real world. And we got a lot of people who are incredibly excited to build our go-get vision. Uber CEO Dark Hazra Shahi, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to have you. Thank you. Emily Chang in conversation with a gentleman running a dynamic business uh, as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.